So the, this morning we, I was contemplating this, this couple of readings from the Sangyutta Nikaya. It is the unformed, the unconditioned, the end, the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the everlasting, the invisible, the undiversified, peace, the deathless, the blessed, safety, the wonderful, the marvelous, Nibbana, purity, freedom, the island, the refuge, the beyond. So, if you just limit uh, Buddhist ideas of transcendence or the goal or liberation to just the word Nibbana, it's a kind of impoverished definition. But if you start to take on some of this other language, it's pointing to something which is ineffable, but I think certainly worthwhile of pursuing or investigating, to say the least. So it is the unformed, the unconditioned. So the unconditioned means it can't be a sense experience. And for conditioned, we use... We have this word sankara, which you see a lot. You see sankara in the five... Kanda's formulation. Uh, sankara is a very um, dif- difficult word to translate, but it, it's something that is determined by other things, and it in turn determines other things. So this clock is determined by a certain manufacturing process, by the batteries that run it. Right, So it's it's dependently originated. Its origins depend on causal factors which create it. But it, in turn, determines my ability to set the time for 45 minutes, to know what time it is, <coughs> and to show off my Enzo clock. Mm-hmm. So it is determined and determines. So it's in a, in a chain of causation. That's the word sankara. And usually it's translated as mental formations. But anything, like the fan is a sankara, your body is a sankara, all thoughts are sankaras, all sights, all sounds, all tastes, all smells, all mental <coughs> formations are sankaras. Or they are sankata, sapali, or they're, they're compounded, or they're complex, or they're conditioned. All right? And so the Buddha's realization is around the unconditioned, or the asankata, the non-determined. And that's why the Buddha says that all sankaras are dukkha. They're unsatisfactory, or they're in this causal chain, so they're always going to be born and die, begin and end, and you won't find this liberation she found in anything which is caused or, or determined. So he says... How do, you, how do you then realize the uncaused? This is very hard to... If you, you know, if you think of it philosophically, how can you realize the uncaused? How can you make causes to get the uncaused? You think it through, it's like your mind goes, blah. So what the Buddha suggests is just don't attach to the caused. Don't attach to the conditions. Don't attach to sankharas. That's, that's his strategy. All right? 
And how does he suggest do that? He says, uh, well, when you, when you really get attached to the sankharas, which is any experience, all your experiences of sankata are, 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 are compounded, any, any sense experience, any mental experience, any bodily experience, any social experience, any environmental experience, the whole nine yards, all of it is not worth attaching to. Still can be, it can be fun. But if you're really trying to understand what the Buddha's pointing to, then don't grasp any condition. And if you do that, then there's a chance, or you become available to the unconditioned. And that word availability is, you know, I use that a lot. You become available. Why? Because you're not preoccupied. If I'm preoccupied with sights and sounds and memories and thought, right? How, how much of our time and mental space is just crowded with thinking? So as long as I'm, uh, as long as I'm engaged in thought and preoccupied with thought, that's the condition. I'm always with the condition. And if I'm always with the, in- the condition, I, I'm not available. There's no access to the unconditioned. Okay? Is that... So, so that's why we say that all conditions are dukkha. And, that, and the word is translated as suffering, but it's not saying that all conditions are bad. It's just saying they're not, they're just determined, they're conditioned. And that's the big misunderstanding of Buddhism. When we say it's all dukkha, it sounds like it's all a bummer. <laughs> right? But I you know, just had some really nice uh, apple pie. <laughs> right? But obviously apple pie is just a sense experience of pleasure, and the sense experience of pleasure is pleasure, it's not displeasure, but it's sankata, and it's not the unconditioned. So to put all my money on apple pie is dumb. <coughs> right? And that's known as hedonism. Right? Or to put all my money onto something else, like some future, some future possibility, well, any future possibility has got to be conditioned by its very nature. If it's not here right now, then there have to be kind of conditions which create it, but then it's still conditioned. So we have the idea of the deathless, that which is not born and does not die. And that doesn't mean an eternal viradhamma body. Horrible, wouldn't it? You know, my, my, This body lives to be nine million years old. It'd be a horror movie, wouldn't it? <laughs> so that's so when you get the idea like deathless and oh, you think of a body, don't you? But think of it more in terms of like sankata or sankaras are 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 beginning and ending, are born and die, right? So the experience of pleasure I have with the apple pie begins and ends. The experience of displeasure I have with uh, finding a, a rock in the apple pie or something and breaking my tooth or something like that, that experience of displeasure comes and goes. But if I'm always preoccupied with pleasure and displeasure, I'm preoccupied. Right? As long as I'm preoccupied, I'm not available to the unconditioned. So one of the ways I get preoccupied is anticipation. I anticipate some kind of future experience called sotapati, called jhana, called liberation, called enlightenment, called Mickey Mouse, whatever you want to call it, and I project into the future this experience which I have to have. But that would be born. If it's, if it's, if it's not here right now, it'd be something that gets born and then die. Anything that's born must die. So 
when you take that logic, you see, well, it's going to be here now. It can't be in the future. And you begin to let go of anticipation. Not because someone says don't anticipate, which means you probably just get more uptight, but you just see the logic of the movement away from the present moment does not make any sense. Does not, it makes no sense at all. So the sense of the deathless. And then rejection or, 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 or um, resistance to the way things are. You begin to contemplate, well, if, if I'm resisting the way things are, then I'm still looking for something other than this thing, this experience I have now. So it can't be about resistance either. And those three, hedonism, uh, resistance, and anticipation, like in the Pali I'd say anticipation is bhavatanha, resistance is vibhavatanha, and hedonism is kamatanha. Just a kind of, you know, when you use Pali language, people just kind of glaze over, so I like to use English. Um, and, and so when you let go of that kind of anticipation, <coughs> resistance, and preoccupation, then your mind is free, and then you're available. And so we say the realization of Nibbana is the abandonment of craving. Abandon resistance, abandon anticipation, and stop being preoccupied with apple pies or cold weather, whatever, whatever your attention gets preoccupied. And free up your attention to the way things are. And then trust. And then you have to trust. Huh? And that's a... That's a and just to get your, get, get your mind at the present moment is a bit of a task. To sustain the mind in the present moment is a greater task. And then to wait, but wait for nothing to let go of craving, to let go of anticipation, to let go of resistance, to let go of history, and just like utterly present in the, in the moment. And that's what we mean by letting go. <coughs> right? So letting go doesn't mean that you don't experience life, it's just you, you're more with the flow of life. Letting go sometimes, some people like to translate it more like letting be. Like our friends, the Beatles. <laughs> they probably had a different interpretation. <laughs> I can't remember what that song was about. It was probably about the deathless. <laughs> but like just the origin tomatoes, it all belongs. You know, these these very very simple teachings are actually. Lumpur uh, Sumedho just taught a, a retreat to Singaporeans outside his monastery in Thailand, and he was saying to one of the monks, "My teaching is so simple now. I don't think anyone understands me anymore." <laughs> I didn't try. He says, what's the essence of Buddhism on that mindful way? Ploy Wong, let go. He's very, you know, these, these are masters. They're masters, and what's their conclusion? It's don't make it a problem. <laughs> don't attach. Let go. This is the way it is now. Very simple, very simple teachings. Um, do nothing. That's an interesting. Do nothing. Try to do nothing. And it's so hard. Not to always be the doer of something. So you get these these very, very beautiful teachings that come in a very simple way from masters that have begun it with very complicated structures. Like Lompa Sumedho, his early teachers were much more complicated. I could understand them. <laughs> I still understand them. <laughs> so it is the unformed. Unformed. Right? It's unformed. 
well, my body is a formation, right? it's formed, pain, so on. So the only thing you really have is, well, okay, there's this knowing, you know, there's this presence, there's, there's this awareness, or whatever you want to call it, there's a sense of being present, or conscious, or, right? Well, what's that? Well, it's not really formed, because I can, I can see that lantern twirling, and that's a form. But I can also feel my hand here, and that's a form. But what lies in between is something which is unformed. is the presence or the awareness or consciousness. And I don't notice that because I'm, wow, that's Atlanta. We should get two. <laughs> right? Oh, my hand's really hurting. I don't like this. So I move between pleasure and pain, pleasure and pain. And my mind is preoccupied. And, and so in meditation, you start to see that the meditation object isn't about the object. It's about the knowing. The breath goes, you know, in, out, in, out, in, out. And you know, and you say, well, what's the knowing? So that's why I like to teach. Listen to sound, feel the body. Toggle between the two, sound, body. And you intuit, oh yeah, there's that unformed part. Consciousness, presence, awareness. Right? And begin to allow that to function in a very deep way and see what happens if that takes place. The unconditioned, the end, the end. The end. This is the end, my friend. Is that the doors? <laughs> so the end. How do you you know? How do you think? I think about that. The end. For me, it's the end of becoming. Again, the moment when there's just the way things are. There's like no past or future. I don't use the end much. I'll probably use it more next week. <laughs> the truth, the Dharma. Truth, Dharma, Dharma. So usually Dharma we think of as Four Noble Truths, Eight Characteristics, Ten Paramitas, Twelve Factors Dependent Origination, and our, all our beautiful Theravada lists. And that's the truth. But no, it's not. It's just concepts. It's just ideas, isn't it? Helpful, helpful. But what is the truth? Well, before you say anything about this present moment, <coughs> and just notice the way things are, that's truth. That's Dharma, isn't it? This moment, just as it is. Describe it, say, it's hot. Well, that's a concept, yeah. But before I say anything about it, and there's awakeness, that's Dharma. Truth. That's the truth. This is true. Whatever, you know, whatever is happening, each of us is, is experiencing this moment in a different way, but it's true. But not in an intellectual sense. It's just true in an existential sense. The truth. The other shore. The subtle. The other shore. The other shore. The far shore. They use that a lot. To me, it's the end of ego. The near shore is always me and my problems. What's going to happen to me? And then all of a sudden, you're you're not engaged in that ego sense. And there's just this sense of, yeah, this is all happening in awareness. This movement is in awareness. You take these in your own way. This, I'm just trying to actually do an exercise of contemplation with you. Do your own contemplation, but this is, I think, how we use the mind in a contemplative way rather than, well, that was neat. Where's the next one? And you just go on to the next chapter, like like a Harry Potter novel or something like that. It's a, it's a different kind of reading. Uh, the everlasting. Does, does presence ever cease? 
it seems that way, doesn't it? Like you're, 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 you're meditating and all of a sudden you're in Sri Lanka at a pagoda and then the bell rings. Right? <laughs> and you're here again. But did presence ever cease? Does presence ever cease? Have you ever not been here? Wherever here is? I don't know. I, 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 uh, even in my wildest fantasies, there's still a sense of presence. The everlasting. The invisible. You know, it's like, you can't really touch it. Awareness, presence, consciousness. You can't really... Is it, is it like four foot tall or is it soft or hard? Is it like coffee or like ginger ale? Right? <laughs> you can't touch it. It's invisible. The undiversified, that's a, that's a difficult one. Diversified consciousness is like, kind of comes from the idea of papancha, just this kind of proliferation of mind, of thought and, and analysis and just diversify them. Just presence has no kind of, no dimension, no non-dimension. Peace. Oh, there's one I can finally relate to, right? <laughs> peace, peace, peace. Yeah. When, you, when, you, when you just listen, is there a problem? Or even even if you're feeling like a mood of, of of negativity, if you just know the mood before you proliferate around it, is that really a problem, or is it just a mood? Can can peace always be there? Can peace always be there even within negativity? Can I can I be peaceful with a, a painful hip? And it can physically. You can see that, can't you? Physically, you can know you're feeling pain. You start to think about it. And then you have enough presence of mind, oh, pain feels this way. And all of a sudden, within a negative physical experience, there's peace. Mentally, too, that's harder. Moods of mind. And once, you, once you recognize the moods of mind, like I, I always talk about fear, I can know if fear arises now, I just know it so well, it's not suffering. It's just unpleasant. It's like having psoriasis. <laughs> just, you know, come flares up every now and then. Not a problem, just just karma, which is a relief. Before it was a problem, and certainly a lot. You know, the psoriasis is much better. <coughs> but if it flares up, well, why not? Why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I feel fear sometimes? Or why shouldn't I feel anger sometimes? Is that really is that really bad, or is that really a problem, or is it just another sankara, just another conditioned thing? So our our our, our problem, quite often in idealism, is that we then. We relate to negativity in a very judgmental and try to get rid of and da 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 da. And, and at some point in our practice, we need to really understand it. But at one point, we say, well, don't, it's just anger. Don't make it a problem. Just fear. Don't make it a problem. That's at the level of really understanding yourself. The deathless, the blessed safety. Safety, that's a nice one. Safety. What's really safe? Uh, Pension plans, the temperature of the climate of the planet, people uh, go and die on you. They do all kinds of weird things. So what's really safe? And you really know that there's no external safety, although one builds a good house, one has a heating system, has insurance, and makes sure you get winter tires. Go for it. Do it all, otherwise it'll even get worse. But true safety or, or, or refuge... Is, is that sense of knowing the way things are, knowing Dharma. The wonderful, the marvelous. Those are, those, are, those are kind of dangerous words. 
So when your mind feels really crappy, oh, I want the wonderful. <laughs> so desire arises to get the wonderful away from the unwonderful, and then you're trapped in desire. But what is wonderful about knowing a mood of the mind is that you are not the mood of the mind. And, and I think we've seen that. Huh? When you, you get some old mood come up, and you don't attach to it, you don't create a self-identity, and it, it, it just passes and says, wonderful. And that's different than just having an experience of wonderful emotional states. It's transcendent. Marvelous. Nibbana. Nibbana is cool. Purity. And this is where you get the ideas of the mind being liberated from greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, the idea where the mind is no longer believes in this as a self-identity or, or gets caught in the anger and fear. And with anger and fear, all that begins to really, really die away. So the realization of a, a, a really highly accomplished being is they work through a lot of greed, greed hatred, and delusion, through, through a lot of hard struggle. Freedom, 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 freedom. That, you know, just that being... You think again, like, we're incarcerated in these bodies. Was, was it Blake or one of those guys said, chained to a dying body or something? Consciousness chained to a dying body. Whoa! <laughs> but that's where we are. Right? And, and when we're in the old people's home and the grill's dribbling down our, ch- our, our chin, <laughs> right? Where's freedom? They're not in this body. But if you have a sense of awake to the way things are, there's freedom within physical challenges. Physical challenges. The island the refuge, the beyond, the beyond. And that's the idea of, which you have in, in all, I think, all mystical religions. Or You have this idea of transcendence and immanence. In, in, in Nepali we say, akalika dhamma, not a matter of time. Ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. And it's, so that's imminent, always here and now, not a matter of time, and transcendent, not dependent on conditions, asantata. Anyway, that's how I parse that. You can, you can go for it yourselves. But, but just also just to indicate how to maybe read uh, Buddhist literature in a way which is, is contemplative. And you could, you could see, you could do that for a year. No problem. You just keep bringing up those ideas. And what that does for your mind, you begin to incline your attention in that particular way. It's very, very fruitful. And then how do you do it? Having nothing. So this we were reading out this morning too. Having nothing. Clinging to nothing. That is the island. There is no other. That is Nibbana. I tell you, the total ending of aging and death. So you're still going to go to the old people's home. <laughs> or, or whatever, get hit by a bus, or whatever way you, you make your exit. But what is the... I'm pretty morbid, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> And maybe you live to be two million years old. I don't think you want that either. <laughs> but, but what is beyond aging and death? And is that not just that sense of knowing change? And so having nothing, clinging to nothing, uh, is not a negation of life. It's still living a life of responsibility. But you are the knowing of the flow rather than immersed in the flow. A great challenge. And so, so we come to those simple phrases, non-grasping or non-attachment. That's what they're about, letting go, letting be. Um, 
And Ajahn Chah is asked in that, in that video by David, the, the interviewer, Ajahn, what's the essence of Buddhism? Mopachas says, Ploi Wang, Wang, let go. Wang is less empty, free. Ploi is let go. And of course, the interviewer can't take that for an answer. <laughs> and what do you mean by Ploi Wang? And uh, then we get the kind of boilerplate Buddhism <laughs> coming out. <laughs> but the essence of his, his response is like this great sense of freedom. Wow, free, open. So what is non-grasping? What is non-grasping? It's the preoccupation with the sankharas. And that which knows, that which knows change, is the way of um, inclining to the asankata, to the unconditioned. That's why you emphasize change. You know, when you, when you are attentive to your emotions, your bodily feelings, your social situations, or something that's changing, you're still responsible with morality and, and your duties and whatever you have but you're relating to what well, this is changing, then all of a sudden you're in the position of knowing Dharma. That's, that's, that's the methodology. That's why we emphasize that. So change is not a, 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 a Buddhist doctrine. It's not like we believe in change. <laughs> they believe in God, we believe in change, right? <laughs> it's like, it just doesn't compute. <laughs> we believe in Anatomy and yeah. But actually, what you're doing is you're employing perceptions moment by moment by moment and seeing now, knowing, realizing uh, consciousness, the experience of life, sense experience through a particular perception. A particular perception. And if you think of that perception, when you notice things as change, you cannot be attached to it. It it requires non-attachment to really to really practice anicca, sanya, the perception of change. You can't be grasping it. Whereas when, you, when you're grasping something, then you're, you're not seeing it as change, you're seeing it as self. My problem, got to get rid of it. Resistance, anticipation, or infatuation, different ways. And all three of those, anicca, dukkha, anatta, um, and the three characteristics are, if you take any of those, one of those three, as a perceptual pair of glasses, the way you look at things, anatta is the same way, it has the same effect. Not self, not me, not mine, whatever way you want to call it. Uh, you, you, you like like a, an emotion of anger comes up and you know, oh, this is just anger, not me, not mine. That distance is non-grasping. Or uh, the, the contemplation of dukkha, any conditioned thing, you realize it can't be. It can't be this. Can't be this. Can't be this. Can't be that. Don't grasp it. It's dukkha. It's the same idea. But the one that usually gets emphasized in Buddhism is this is un, unreliable. This is uncertain. Uncertainty. So we have faith in uncertainty. <laughs> Very paradoxical kind of teaching. And what you you know? Then what can you really be certain of? That things will change. Because things are uncertain. And when you really get that, it's not just a kind of Buddhist joke. But when you practice that, you begin to, to intuit the island, the refuge, peace, stillness. You begin to, oh yeah, it's always there. It's always available. And it's when you start grasping, of course, then you're in the tumult, like born and die. So it sounds like, well, so how do I live my life? 
Right? Who's going to pay the mortgage? It's all right for you. <laughs> That's what people say. It's all right for you. <laughs> like I have somehow, I don't have emotions or responsibilities. <laughs> but you can, you can live your life responsibly, but also you can bring up this kind of deep, deep contemplation of, of uh, the goal. And I, I think it's very, very important. So that we, we don't just get caught, we don't just limit Buddhism to a, a, a psychological methodology or a sociological methodology or some kind of altruism, you know, that there is, there is this realization the Buddha said we have a chance to, to, to know. All right. Any questions or comments around that? Piece of cake? <laughs> yes. Um, I have a little uh, difficulty with uh, sort of the relationship between anticipation and effort. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I'm just sort of an amateur meditator and stuff like that, so I'm not too dissatisfied with the returns that I get. But I'm not <laughs> <laughs> happy it's paying dividends. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, when, I, when you're making a great effort, when you're making sacrifices, um, what's the motivation to the effort? It's got to be, and maybe this is just words, but it's anticipation of a benefit. That's the danger. That's the very that's that's the difficulty, because that's the way we're conditioned to make effort is to get a result. <laughs> See how difficult it is to, 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 to come to the present moment and not try to rearrange it to a different formation and to accept it totally as that and then let it run its course or let it speak to you or, or whatever you want is, is, is very subtle. It's very, very subtle. So I'm sitting and meditating and yeah. I notice I'm thinking. Right. So I make an effort to let go of thought yeah. and come back to the awareness. Right. Um, so that's that's effort. But is it to become anything? Is the effort based on I'm going to make some effort now so that I don't think anymore, or is the effort to just really make conscious the present moment? Say that again. <laughs> is the effort to become someone who doesn't think? Or is the effort to make conscious the present moment here, now, here, now, here, now? What's, which? Yeah, the, the latter. Yeah, okay, so that's non-becoming. Right. So I'm trying to become somebody who's non-becoming. <laughs> <laughs> Once you talk about that sort of paradox, you said, like, somebody said to you, you know, it's a trick. And you came right back with, well, is it a good trick? <laughs> <laughs> Is that what I said? No, I like that. <laughs> but it, it's it's it, like you see, like some teachers when their when their students become really more and more refined, then they'll say, "Make no effort." That's hard. I mean, just as if, you know, it sounds like a contradiction in terms. How can I make no effort? But but what you what you intuit more and more as you practice and your mind settles down. You begin to see the doer as an object. And you begin to notice that doer as the object. And that takes you back into awareness more and more and more and more and more. And back into the present moment, your mind drops into silence, into peace. Mm -hmm. 
because even the doer is, is, is still a kind of coarseness and, and, and restlessness and a me doing a something to get somewhere. And that is a kind of subtlety that comes from just uh, doing whatever you do and being, being more and more attentive to how it works and then seeing, oh, there's still this, this doer. In the beginning, we have to have a strong doer, like the first time you meditate, maybe you can't sit still, so you set your clock for 10 minutes. Damn it, I'm just going to stay here for 10 minutes. Okay, strong doer. Makes a lot of sense. But as, as, as the dividends start to <laughs> accrue, <laughs> you know, and the bank account gets a bit more beautiful, then, then, then you, you start to see these subtleties of the very sense of becoming something. So vibhavatana, the sense of uh, the craving to become, that's known as an object. And when you know it as an object and bear with it, then it dies away. So one of the ways we talk about Nibbana or the realization is the cessation of these times of craving. And that's what you notice. You notice, you notice like bhava, this anticipation coming up, but you notice, know it now as an object and you stay as the knowing. And as that, because it's also impermanent, as it falls away, your mind sinks into a deeper peace. Oh, that's interesting. So where, where, where does the energy come from to keep you on the path? There's a joy in that. There's a curiosity in that. There's a, there's some kind of in, intuition that it can't be this, it can't be that, it can't be that. And all those things are kind of adding up. And they're, 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 there's a kind of love of the work. There's a love of the challenge and all that. You know. In the beginning, it's just hang in there. <laughs> Why am I even doing this, right? <laughs> Uh, but then after a while, hopefully, you know, the dividends are accruing. And, and, and you get this kind of curiosity, because the mind has more joy. It has stillness, it, it enjoys that stillness. But then you see, oh, that stillness still has a kind of coarseness behind it. What is that coarseness? And oh, yeah, yeah. So it's always through investigation, observation, charm, and, and things. So it's very much a falling away, via negativa kind of way of talking about it. So the third noble truth is there's the Abandonment, relinquishment, the cessation of craving. And you just see that more and more, more and more so levels. Yeah, so I hope you hit the jackpot. I'll <laughs> no, 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 no. You hit the jackpot, don't worry. The lotto's just around the corner. <laughs> Keep going. Any others? Music. Uh, yeah. Yes, Asini. Well, I'm sort of on the same same line, Ajahn. I'm going back to that plastic sunflower. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so light throws. Plastic sunflowers, like yeah, sun. yeah. So is it is it to to just not let that sunflower be a problem and let it be, mm-hmm. and not try to get rid of that sunflower? Sometimes it depends on your responsibility. You know, if if the sunflower is toxic. And all the monks have to come in with gas masks, right? And we say, well, it's a nice offering, Mr. Jones, <laughs> but, but I'm afraid it's just not going to work. We're going to have to take it out of the sala. So it's not, it's, not, it's not a recipe for, like, absolute passivity. But, you see, I think, I think a life of Dharma is making all of life a spiritual vehicle, Okay making all of life your monastery. So the priority is liberation from suffering. But that's done 
by being uh, like like I have my precepts and I have my hierarchy that I live in and I have my responsibilities. So that that defines me as a person, and that's the game I play. I play I play the game of Abid Ajahn, etc., etc. And within that, uh, my my main task is not to be a teacher or a monk or a fa- uh, or, or a uh, uh, son. Or, or whatever, those are the roles that define how I live socially, but the main task is liberation from suffering. Whereas most people have it reversed. They think, well, you know, I'll, I'll become successful and then I'll practice. Right? Uh, I'll get this one sorted out and then I'll practice. As if, but if you make the priority liberation from suffering, that's not selfish, but it's, it's, in, it's, it's getting that reflective mind going in all situations. So the plastic flower... Uh, the ultimate thing that's important is both my responsibility, but also the liberation from suffering. So they're not mutually exclusive. They're working with each other. But the priority is liberation from suffering. And if you get it that way, then your definitions... Like if I, if I had... When Ajahn Sumedho asked me to teach, if I had made my most important thing is to be a teacher, I, you know, my ego would have taken over. And I would have been more frightened or more arrogant or whatever... Uh, and but nobody said no, no. Use that, use the teaching to understand suffering and ego and things like that. Whereas if I would have done the other, you know, being a teacher is important. Publish or perish, <laughs> or, or whatever. And I would have gotten that, then, then I would have missed the boat in some way. Not that I wouldn't have been doing the other. So, so the whole thing is not to be a Buddhist, not to be a monk. But just to do those as activities of, of, of liberation. So socially, you can't really say what you should do, but you, know, you try to do your best. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking. I, I, I think I made this. Told you this again. I mean, it is some of these things you can't figure out. But your mind, when you do seclusion, when your mind becomes very quiet, you have certain understandings that's sometimes difficult to explain. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that way, you know, doing some seclusion is is always very good to understand these things because figuring them out is quite difficult. Well, in, insights, like, insi- insights like that, even though you can't explain them, they alter your worldview <clears throat> and you begin to intuitively function from a deeper understanding of the way things are. And even if you can't explain it, it doesn't matter. Your psyche now has been reoriented towards liberation more rather than towards ignorance. And that's, a, that's an interesting process which is not just having figured it out. It's like really seeing. You really, you know, you really say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then that, that has a way of affecting, you know, really changing, really changing in profound ways. And you don't, you don't see it right away happening. But sometimes you do, but quite often you don't. But you see your attitudes are just changing and you get, get more and more adept at not grasping and not attaching. And, and seclusion is very, very, can be very helpful for that. Some people can't do seclusion. They get depressed. Some people do it really well. So it kind of depends too. Any other thoughts? Kamini? Uh-huh. So is it uh, now effort without anticipation at the end. Uh, so at the beginning, anticipation might be needed to have effort. And then at the end, it 
it reduces anticipation part, but still you do effort. Yeah. Something like that. You could, you could say that. But what, you know, you take Four Noble Truths. There's two models that kind of go down in Theravada. One is the letting go model, and one is the attainment model. Guess <laughs> which model I talk about. <laughs> so the attainment model is four stages of enlightenment. And that's what everyone likes to talk about, right? Um, the, the analysis from the uh, Abhidhamma of these different stages of insight and so on. I don't think that way. Right? So if you think that way, then that's a different model, different model. The model I take is the abandonment, the third noble truth, is the letting go of craving, right? And understanding that. And if I keep that, that suffering has a cause, and that cause is attachment to craving, and the letting go of craving is the path, and I keep developing that, then the subtlety of craving becomes more and more apparent. And what letting go becomes more and more apparent. And so that in the beginning, I, I would make, like as a young monk, just crazy things crazy determinations, like really, really fierce, but I didn't have much wisdom. Had a lot of effort, but it wasn't balanced by wisdom and maturity. And I'd hurt myself, and things like that, but then I learned. And so my effort became more in line with right understanding, less in line with greed, hatred, and delusion. My mind became more in line with what really awareness was, what go was, and that was a slow transition, which continues. And, and, and so you could... It, it, I always, you know, rather, I always come back to what's the basic model I'm working from? What's my basic understanding? So my, my understanding comes from these kinds of thoughts. That, then, it, that informs my understanding of anicca, dukkha, anatta, and dependent origination. So it informs it. So the Buddha's statements about transcendence informs my understanding of why he talks about anicca, dukkha, anatta, and why he talks about dependent origination. And why talks about the Four Noble Truths and the letting go? That's the model that works for me. Attainment models, never, I never liked those myself. Because it usually brought me into the sense of me trying to attain something. Didn't work for me. My teachers never taught that. My teachers said, no, no, just do this way. But both models exist. Yeah. Um, so if, if, you're taking the, if you're taking craving as your object, and you're, you're honest about it, and you know it, and you can bear witness to it, and it ceases, then you start to feel the peace of the heart. Because craving ceased without, without replacing it, like without some kind of compensation of a different kind of an object. So letting go of craving isn't like switching from cigarettes to candy. <laughs> you know, it's not that. That's not the model. Letting go of craving is not smoking anymore. Basically just letting go. And, and, and you, you start to see, oh yeah, that does work. And as, as you see that does work, then whatever scenario comes up, you realize it's not the scenario, it's the craving. And get, you, you watch that, and then you watch it, and then you watch it cease. And you begin to see cessation, the ending, the ending of things. But if you don't have a sort of um, model that you're working from, kind of like an equation, as it were, then you just get these kind of ideas, like effort, but it, it's not in the context of what the path is about. And if you don't have that context, then it just can be... It does, it's not linked to the reason we're doing this. If you link it to the reason you're doing this, why the Buddha suggested this, why he's talking about sense experience being limited, 
and you link it all to that, then you have panya, then you have right understanding. And then everything, right effort, right thought, begins to fall from that. But if you're not linked to right understanding, quite often you just take kind of an abstract idea about effort, and it's not really in the path. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah, it's a... I have a burning question, actually, I wanted to ask you. Your hair's on fire. Actually, I I noticed in myself that uh, Sangvega is is really serious. Sangvega, yeah, okay. Well, how would you translate Sangvega? Spiritual urgency. Okay. The need to study, the need to understand, not necessarily in that order, but... um, and these were very interesting questions that uh, really made me uh, contemplate that a little bit. That uh, there is a possibility of moving to the other side, sort of getting to trying to achieve, you know, to to just gobble up all the books. I have so many. <laughs> I, I read them and then I read another one and never finish any of them. <laughs> and it's it's becoming uh, even though dharma craving is apparently healthy. Can <laughs> 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 get to the point that it's really craving. Sure. And. Uh, and I don't know the limitations. Don't read for five years. No, no. <laughs> 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 Tried that once. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't That's what you just said to me. Don't read for five years. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, cheated. There is a danger of taking up. There is a danger of taking on too many concepts. They can lead to doubt. You know, you, because you 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 get one formulation or another formulation, and it sounds very clever, but then you get this kind of logjam of, of of formulations in your head, like like a kind of traffic jam, and then you which one, which one. So, you know, I've been always taught take 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 one aspect and and integrate it into your mind rather than constantly fill up more more knowledge. So there's a danger of too much knowledge, I think. So, but, I've got all those lovely books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that uh, takes me to the question of right effort. There is the abandoning that is already a reason. Uh-huh. And there is a one point that I, I'm not very clear that uh, cultivation of the good. Cultivation of something that has not. Yeah, not, ri- cultivation not, of wholesome that hasn't arisen. The unwholesome. Like, how do you cultivate the unwholesome that hasn't arisen? Don't cultivate it. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean that, but. Um, prevent, prevent the unwholesome from yeah, arising. It, like, do you have to see it when it's coming up? Or no, live morally. Oh, yeah. yeah? So that prevent like. If if I if I decide well, fifth priest said what the hell, <laughs> and anyway marijuana is going to be legal, <laughs> <laughs> so let's just relax a bit. 
then then you're letting go of your protection and you get heedless. That's the sort of general idea. Or you, or the routines and meditation you have, right? They are a kind of they prevent the unwholesome from rising because you have more mindfulness. Or uh, kalyanamitta, uh, wholesome friends, they prevent uh, unwholesome things arising because of bad influences, uh, association with dumb. All those things are kind of both wholesome themselves and preventive measures from the unwholesome arising. Mm-hmm. And, and you see that, like people kind of give up on meditation, and then ten years later they come and say, bad move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they sort of say, oops, should have stayed with. <laughs>